BTB listeners, thank you so much for checking out today's episode. Listen, if this episode inspires you, do me a favor and take five seconds to shoot me a like and subscribe to the podcast. There are several more exciting guests that are in the pipeline, and I just can't thank you enough for your continued support, and let's keep paying the mission forward. Let's get into it. Episode 29 of the BTB Project. Today's guest is a firstborn American whose parents came from Romania. Before going to college, she had an outstanding junior tennis career, winning three national titles, which included two silver balls in doubles play and a bronze ball in singles. She received a full-ride tennis scholarship to Vanderbilt University, earning second-team All-SEC and SEC All-Tournament Team honors. She represented the school at number one singles and number one doubles as a freshman, and it was ranked top 75 in the ITAs. Following that season, she transferred to Baylor University, where she was a three-time Big 12 Conference champion, helping the Bears to a top 25 national ranking After a standout college career, she began her coaching journey where she was the head coach at Weatherford College and Georgia State University, and now she's the head women's coach of Queens University of Charlotte. Alex Latu, welcome to the BTB Project. Welcome to the BTB Project designed to empower listeners to identify their why and to live their best lives no matter the circumstances. My name is Coleman Gerhardt, a former athlete and motivational coach. I've had the opportunity to inspire thousands through my story and help accomplish what they are built to be. You'll be encouraged by each and every episode, and let's get into it. Yeah, when I blow up, I'm a sore high like Peter Pan. In real life, be living all my dreams if I'm waking up in some It's always a joy for me to reconnect with influential people in my life. And I just remember back in the day, the talent you were as a tennis player, but more importantly, just the person that you are and seeing now what you're doing as a college coach and seeing how your players play for you and how you motivate your team. The listeners today are going to take away so much wisdom and value for what you bring. And with that, I'd like to introduce my first women's tennis coach on the BTB project, Miss Alex Latu. Welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Coleman. So happy to be here. There's so much to unpack, one, with your journey, but two, the leadership that you have led with for these past few years as a head coach. And I just want to dive right into that first and say congrats on another amazing kind of start to, you know, your path as a coach and continuing to impact lives at Queens. And I would just love for you to speak to how you ended up at Queens and what you're looking forward to with the coming season. So Queens came out of the blue a little bit for me. I was at Weatherford College. I started that program there and Uh, My relationship at the time was long distance, and of course, the plan was to at some point find a place that brings us, you know, together, and we're both in college athletics, 
and he's from this area and I got a call actually from the Queens athletic director to see if I was interested in the job. And here I am, went on an interview and it worked out, just clicked and God played a huge role in that one. <laughs> nah, that's right. It's typically how he likes to play the cards, no doubt. And you know, when it comes to the previous college, was that located in the Carolinas as well? Or could you maybe walk us through the, the logistic change you made? There have been a lot of changes. <laughs> <laughs> the previous school, Weatherford College, is in Weatherford, Texas. It's about 30 minutes west of Fort Worth. Okay, excellent. And, you know, obviously I knew you from your past life in, in Colorado, and I'm not up to speed, and the listeners I know will be intrigued by this, but it's always a tough transition to see some players make that jump into coaching. And everything I've seen with you and even the kind of small things I've heard from players that have played for you have absolutely loved you as a coach. So can you maybe just speak to what that transition was like for you to get into this? And was it always on the horizon or was it something that you kind of developed over time? I've always been so passionate about tennis and I've never been able to picture my life without it. My college career was as a player was not the easiest. Yeah. And that was the root of why I wanted to become a coach. Mm. I wanted to be the coach that I needed at the time. And especially as a female leader and mentor for, for female players, I think, there are just not many out there and that's changed a little bit, but that's been my, you know, that's kind of been my, my mission to, to lead with empathy, to kind of set an example for women and young women who are going through that transitional period in their college years. Those are really difficult years. And when you're in a toxic environment, mm. that doesn't really set you up for a lot of success afterward. So, you know, as a, as a player transitioning into coaching, it was, it was difficult because I, you know, I was trying to find my voice and my style of coaching a little bit as I jumped into a head coaching role at a D2 program. So already I'm leading a program and it's a different level that yeah. I wasn't accustomed to. So it was just a lot of adjustments I was thrown into and I wouldn't have changed that for the world. Yeah. The importance of coaching. I mean, we are glorified seed planters in people's lives. And it's interesting to me because your passion and why of what led you to be into the coaching role is very similar to me. I, didn't have the greatest high school coaching experience. I remember kind of sharing my goals with my coach and he looked at me like I had 10 heads. And then unfortunately in college, I had four coaches in five years. I played a fifth year red shirt uh, after an injury, but uh, nonetheless, that inconsistency of coaches was challenging. And I mean, here we are though, talking about a sport where my program actually at University of Northern Colorado just got cut about three years ago during COVID, mm -hmm. both men's and women's tennis. So I think being a coach and having the opportunity, 
I believe the opportunities are going to be less and less for the sport of tennis, unfortunately. Maybe speak to, you know, what it means to still have that opportunity to fulfill that passion and what is really your ultimate goal at Queens? My ultimate goal is to prepare young women to be as successful as possible in the real world. And I think every step that we take in developing our culture to do that will allow us to find success on the court as well. I think everything's so tied together. The little things that you do day in, day out, the way you talk to teammates, the way you talk to coaches, there's just so many intricacies in team culture that I love. and. I'm never complacent. Uh, I'm very self-critical as a person and as uh, a coach. So I'm always trying to do things better and different. And I know one way might not work for one group of women one year and the next year it could be completely different and I have to adjust. And that's, that's the beauty of coaching, just being able to adjust and, and see the needs of your players yeah, I definitely get a sense from you, Alex, that you are very not only self-aware, but you're probably hyper-aware of environments and how to keep good energy in a team environment. It actually reflects back to a quote that you shared in your podcast that you were doing back in the day, and it's around leadership, and it talks about a cave the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. And some of those things that you maybe experienced as a player and as you were transitioning into coaching where you kind of had some self-doubt about um, how you were going to approach your leadership style, who were some mentors or other coaches or people in your life that helped kind of shape who you are today as a coach? There are three people that really stand out. Uh, the first person's my father, and he coached me until I went to, um, we moved to to Littleton, and yep. I started working with Frank Adams. Yep. Um, he, he's changed, he had changed a lot throughout our journey as, like, father-daughter, coach-player relationship. Um, he, he always understood when he made mistakes, mm. and he was able to correct those mistakes and he was always looking to be better for me. And he was completely selfless, obviously as a dad, it's a little bit of a different dynamic, but he showed me what, what it means to coach with tough love. And mm. that's part of how I coach too. The second mentor would be Marco Mediucci. Okay. Um, he's the men's head coach at NJIT. Okay. Um, in New Jersey. Yeah. He, he was the volunteer at Baylor, uh, my final year there. And he was just so different. He's such a different sort of coach that I never had so calm, just mm. like this straight line. He got emotional for positive things, but he, he was always talking to me about law of attraction and just different things that took you out of the tennis space. Yeah. And it allowed me as a player to see the big picture on things. And he really helped me with my transition. And um, I'm just happy for him where he's at as well. Um, Absolutely. And then the, the third person that comes to mind is Alistair McCaw. Um, he's an author and performance coach, has worked with 
a ton of players and college teams, different sports. He, he and I um, met like at a conference in Atlanta and kept in touch. And then he worked with my team at Georgia state, but you know, off the court, he was, he's such a good friend and inspiration. And he always tells you what you need to hear, even though sometimes it's not ideal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I picked up on something when you were sharing the, the, the mentors and influences on coaching styles. And I want to ask you about it because I think one big misconception about coaching is that it's not always about forehands and backhands or the, the tennis piece, as you said, right? Mm-hmm. And I've been in high school coaching now for aging myself here, but almost 17 years. I'm an assistant coach now, but nonetheless, I spend a lot of time when I do have those interactions during a match with a player and talking more unrelated to tennis talking outside of tennis because what ends up happening is sometimes there are certain players that when they focus and they're hyper focused on trying to you know create a a result oriented outcome right or a, a particular strategy that's very specific to an outcome that they're no longer present and I spend a lot of time just more more on the emotion part and the self-awareness part because you and I both know that if a player is on a court and they're not self-aware, it's very hard to talk them out of that. But maybe can you speak to your coaching style? I know that college you can be on the court and you know say things or do things during the match, but where have you had some success knowing how your mentors have influenced you and paying that forward to how you coach? when it comes to on-court things, delivery is huge. If you deliver a message in a calm and respectful way that's clear, short and clear, it's always so much better. And I've had experience with players from other teams come and talk to me, like, because they see I'm coached uh, close with their coach. Can you tell coach to to shorten up his coaching <laughs> spiel? And I'm like, can't help you with that one. <laughs> you know, I think there's a time and place for long conversations. And at practice and during matches, I think short, concise messages are key. And when a, when you're closer to players and you are, are clear about the standards and clear – off in off court meetings about what they need to improve, uh-huh. then there's no questions being asked. There's less, um, you know, there's less complications. There's less um, inconsistent communication. It's just a better relationship all in all. And that's definitely key for me. And that's something you learn as a coach and, it takes some time that you can't just be perfect at it. And emotions play a huge role because mm. players aren't perfect. You're not perfect. So there are moments they don't want to hear you talk. Nope. They don't want to listen. And you have to, you know, you have to know when to let them be and when to press. And that's, that's a big part of, of coaching women. Also just more emotions at, at play. Yes. And I recall you sharing kind of 10 things that you've learned 
being a student athlete that can cross over into coaching and into life. And just for fun, I know that you know these, but I'm going to read all 10 because I think that they're very important. But uh-huh. I would love based off of where you're at today, you know, you wrote this a little while back, a couple years, but I would love to hear which one of these you're tapping into the most right now with your players. Okay. So I'm going to read all 10 and then I'm going to have you tell me which one comes to mind that you're, you're hitting on right now. Uh, the first one is get better every single day. The second is prove them wrong. Third is work on your weaknesses. Fourth is execute and practice. Fifth is learn from greatness. Sixth is learn from wins and losses. And you got practice mindfulness. Be ambitious. Believe in your team. And learn storytelling. I would say execute and practice is a big one. And then the next one's practicing mindfulness. Mm. This past year, that those were the two big things we focused on, funny enough. The <laughs> girls, um, every day before practice, I write the practice plan on the board. And in the group text, I sent them, um, I send them like a link to five-minute meditation. So whenever they come down to the courts, they have their headphones in, close their eyes, and have that five-minute meditation because those those few moments between class and going to practice what you do in those moments matters and I think having Mm. a clear mind entering practice has helped them a lot that's powerful because you know before we hopped on this episode I talked about my son and you know he's in high school and Mm -hmm. obviously I've seen the rigor that he takes on as a student athlete, you see student athletes all the time in college. And I'm just curious when it comes to kids transitioning from high school to college that you're taking on and making that adjustment and the mindfulness piece, do you see kids in 2023 having a harder time with that? Or do you feel like it's becoming something that kids are getting better with that transition. They're getting worse because things are just so quick and accessible to them and they get bored. Being bored is an epidemic right now. And they, they feel like they have to fill their, their time with things because they're just, things are a little bit easier. They come a little bit easier. And so spending time on something can get annoying for them. So making it a, routine and a ritual and a team standard, I think help them, you know, improve in that aspect. Because at the beginning, a lot of them, I would, I would say two or three really struggled with it. They couldn't sit still, they couldn't relax. And at the end, they were all just Zen. I would walk (laughs) down and see them on the benches, just relaxed. Yeah. yeah, I've been diving deep, Alex, into my own self-help and trying mm-hmm. to find ways to, you know, kind of remain calm in stressful moments. And a lot of it comes down to breathing, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, saw something interesting, a gentleman by the name of Jay Shetty. He has a really powerful podcast yeah. and great influencer. Spent some time as a Buddhist monk. And thing that resonated with me was kids – 
in the Buddhist culture, the first thing they learn before the ABCs is how to breathe. And I mm. find it ironic that kids today or high school or college, you know, young men and women, the first thing that these people do when things get stressful is they stop breathing. They, yes. They seize up, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting how they're always looking for an answer to how to prevent that. But the answer is something pretty simple. Uh, meditation, self-awareness is not a complicated thing. It just is that ability to be vulnerable enough to let yourself do it. Right. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. I think that that uh, is a tremendous strategy you're using with your team and I know that you mentioned mentors. I would love to backtrack a little bit to your parents Mm -hmm. from Romania, correct? And tremendous athletes. Your dad was an Olympic bobsledder. Your mom was a national champion as a gymnast. I mean, the lineage that you grew up in is unbelievable. So I would love for you to speak to, I know you talked about your dad being a coach. I just would love to hear you speak uh, to your parents and how they've been an impact to your life and your journey so far. They have had the biggest impact. You know, if it wasn't for them, I, I wouldn't be here. And their journey as a couple was extremely difficult. Being really great athletes, they were able to get into the University of Physical Education and Sports in Bucharest. And so there you have to be proficient in every single sport to be able to graduate. So, you know, they had to learn the intricacies of strength and conditioning of every sport, how to play the technique. So it's like all encompassing. And so that's how, you know, my dad really loved tennis growing up. And then he got to do that when he was in school and learn more and loved the sport. Yeah. But Um, When my dad started traveling with bobsledding, it was, you know, during that time he was finishing up school and they went to compete at the World Cup in Italy before the Sarajevo Olympics. Mm. And they got third place there and um, they were in taxis going to the airport. And my dad told the taxi driver to not follow the taxi in front of them. And so they defected in Italy his him and two other guys on his team and they were in a refugee camp there for eight months you know the the u.s came through the you know bobsled federation there helped them get visas and they had to find sponsors though so it was Mm. it was tough for them and but they made it here and my parents were apart for six years Mm. and they only wrote letters random phone calls and they stuck it out and it was a huge inspiration uh for me like when i'm trying to find the right person throughout life it's it's hard when you see their journey and yeah commitment and you know i grew up in low-income housing and steamboat like it was very difficult beginnings my parents were working two jobs each my grandparents came over when i was born also so they Uh. care of me while my parents worked and you know my dad he was teaching the local steamboat kids at those two 
public courts at House and Hill. And okay, you know, not even the indoor old. tennis center, huh? Where the no. Ar- where the Aragons <laughs> hung out. He wasn't there. He was <laughs> on the outdoor courts. <laughs> <laughs> Some random public courts and yeah. Um, yeah, when I, I went out there one day and with my mom and he was finishing up with the kids and he started just tossing balls to me um, and I made, I mean, I didn't hit it, but I made over the net, but I made contact with the ball and that's how I stuck with the sport. Well, I remember your contact with the ball all too well because <laughs> I was the recipient of receiving some of those hits and serves uh, down the hill in Littleton, Colorado, where mm-hmm. I can't quite remember how our paths crossed, but I know that you were near the King Carroll Valley area and you were just looking for, for people to hit with. And at the time, I, I still had something left in the tank after a, a college career and a few back surgeries. But uh, mm-hmm. nonetheless, I, I do remember very well, um, and please, just full transparency, is I've seen a lot of people hit a tennis ball on the women's side. And you were one of the best pure ball strikers i ever seen. Um, I got to spend time at a tennis academy in Arizona where I worked with a lot of international players. And then I spent a brief stint at uh, Saddlebrook in uh, Wesley Chapel, Florida, hit a few times with uh, Jennifer Capriotti and um, Alex, your ball was just fantastic. So whatever your dad was doing with, with how he was feeding it, or maybe because the ball flew so fast and steamboat, like, you know, you, 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 you picked up the game and played the game at a very high level. And I would just love to, have you speak to that transition down the hill to Littleton? And I know at that point as a junior, you're kind of stuck between this rock and a hard place because Colorado tennis, it's very hard to develop. Mm-hmm. It's very challenging to go to an intermountain tournament and have success and then go to a SoCal tournament and, and lick your wounds. Right. So I would just love for you to speak to the listeners on how you developed your game in Colorado as a junior? Well, technically my, my dad's coaching was very sound uh-huh. and, you know, he was right on the money with a lot of things. And with, even with my players, I teach them a lot of what he taught me and it just works. And uh-huh. the footwork as well, huge. Um, and, and in Colorado where the ball's coming so fast, you got to optimize your footwork from a young age yes. and um, transitioning and moving to, to Littleton, you know, my, my dad knew I needed more help and he didn't have an ego. Uh. He, he just wanted me to have the best. And I, I went to zonals in Omaha and met Frank Adams there. He was oh. one of our coaches in 12 and unders. And so my dad called him up and, I started hitting with him and he was phenomenal, phenomenal coach for me and helped me really jump in, in inner mountain, um, for a few years. And then at clay courts, I was 13. So a couple years later, um, we just tried out this tennis Academy with a friend of mine and it was Nick Saviano's tennis Academy. Gotcha. And I was there for a couple of days and we were on our way out and Nick caught my dad before we got in the car and he asked him what his plans were for me. And he said, you need to bring her back here. 
Mm. And so that's when I started going to that academy. And um, Nick really helped me just jump in, in terms of confidence, understanding the game better. And really, you, you can't beat the group of players that I was around. You know, every day I was hitting with Sloan Stevens, Laura Robson, Mallory Burdett. Wow. Um, Jeannie Bouchard, Monica Puig. Like, that was our group Jeez. for two years. And um, it's it's amazing what an environment like that can do for you. And just having someone to just constantly go against and get better with. And iron sharpens iron. Yeah. And that's what comes to mind whenever I think about my time there. It was financially so stressful for my parents. And, you know, the, these girls, they were, I think, in a little bit different situation than yeah. we were. I was there two, two weeks a month. I wasn't full time. So whenever I was in there, I was playing a tournament or I was with Frank and I became homeschooled at this point and just it was a grind and eventually couldn't afford it anymore. Tried nukes out in, in uh, San Antonio for a while. Just was not the right fit for me. Yeah. I quit tennis. I, I remember I came home from there. I was, I was getting so much worse and depressed. I just wasn't enjoying it. I hated, I hated it. Mm. And what age were you when you came to that, that point? Yeah. I was almost 16. Okay. At this point. Um, Cause and, I remember I, I, I met you just a little bit before that. And yeah. I, at the time was a head tennis coach at a high school in Littleton called Chatfield senior yeah. high. And you know, here I am starting my coaching journey at 22 years old, coaching high school girls tennis and going back to what you were saying with coaching, you know, women and the emotion part of it. I, really had the ultimate test of understanding how I can be the best support in those moments. Right. Hmm. But nonetheless, we had a tremendous team. I think we were top three in the state and, and five a for Colorado. And I had an opportunity to have a few discussions with you about high school tennis. And I know ultimately you made the decision to continue your training and to not play high school tennis. But I'm just curious since we're, light years after that, knowing what you know now as a coach and knowing the importance of a team and just developmentally, um, you see some folks that play high school tennis that can go to college, have a decent college career and then go on a tour. It's, it's possible, but I'm just wondering what was high school tennis uh, to you back then? And what does it mean to you now? I think the idea is phenomenal yep. of, of team, but for me, it just, it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't part of my, my personal path. I think there is value in it. Absolutely. But there was so much time that would have to go into that. Yeah. I didn't have. And, you know, after the high school season was over and I think Aaron Sanders wanted this year, that, that year, that's right. Yeah. Uh, she was uh Ponderosa and then uh, went on to play at uh, CU. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. yeah. 
and I, I played her first round in the tournament right after that. And and how'd that go? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I was, it was O and O, so it wasn't like you know what I mean. It yeah, was, no, no. I and and listen, like I, you and I both know that it would have been a very selfless move for you to go be a part of a high school tennis team. And I'm not, I'm not trying to say anything yeah. less of Colorado tennis, for sure. but your path, your trajectory, I believe if you would have played four years, you would have won four state championships. That's my opinion. So nonetheless, you got to play Aaron, you chose a different path yeah. and you know, when it came to that moment again at, at 16, where you're like, you're on this path and then you get burnt out. How in the world did you get the courage to pick up the racket again, to keep going? Well, at that point, the recruiting process for college had started. So I had all these, you know, schools, emails, things were different back then. Of course, there were a lot more rules in terms of contact but one of the main people that was recruiting me was Amy Jensen at yes. University of Denver at the time. And I had told her, we were a little closer. Our relationship, I think, was a little different during the recruiting process. She was very real. She never put up any sort of front. And, yeah, I told her, like, I don't know if I want to play anymore. Mm. And this was over a phone call and she was like, well, I need you to hold on to that thought and put it on the back burner for <laughs> a little while. And I was like, okay. And then a week later she resigned as the head coach at, at DU. And uh, she called me and told me, and she's like, I'd love to coach you full time pro bono. Mm. And she became my coach. Yeah, that's a, another small world because I worked with Amy up at uh, Evergreen Sports Center. Evergreen, yeah. Her and Sarah Stone. And um, I also was victim to playing Amy Jensen in mixed doubles. <laughs> she was a two-time national champion at Cal. Just had a different level of net awareness and hands that I'll just I'll never forget. But nonetheless, a phenomenal coach, and she took you on full time. So I'd love to have you speak to that time that you spent with her and maybe kind of some of the defining moments that prepared you for the recruiting process. Man, she was, she changed my life. She was fantastic, so caring, selfless, and she's the one that took my head out of the game and mm. allowed me to see the game differently because of focusing on bettering myself, bettering my mind, um, not worrying about how I'm hitting the ball, but worrying about what I do between points, how I'm, you know, how I'm thinking before a match, how I'm thinking um, after a match and, how I compete and that allowed me to end up hitting the ball better. Wouldn't you know? <laughs> but, uh, 
she and she changed my net game like she like you said she was incredible at the net and just her understanding of of doubles in the net game that's what was a huge part of preparing me for college tennis was the doubles and i felt so comfortable and confident because for hours and hours it wouldn't matter if we spent four hours on court together or one she was there for, mm. for the long haul if we needed to stick to something working on something she would do it however long so i remember practicing for like an hour serve kick serve serve and volley first ball at the net over and over again and just the transition to the net made me so comfortable from doing that and it was just having her believe in me and Mm. it was it was incredible and working with her for I think that you know I think I started with her May, May and then played hard courts in August and I had great results so part of your junior success was it it was what three national championships uh, a bronze ball a couple silver balls would you say that that time with Amy allowed you to be playing your best junior tennis at that point I think with with Nick Saviano when I was younger yeah I played my best then and then with her as I got older definitely played my best and going into to college at Vanderbilt she's the one that helped me kind of set that next level foundation and I, yeah. I want to talk about recruiting process in schools because I know Vanderbilt is where you started and then eventually transferred to Baylor which we'll get into but what schools were interested was the mailbox big enough for all of the letters of interest because <laughs> Listen, I, I'm sure that uh, there was a lot of opportunity to go to several different schools, and I would just be curious to fold back the curtain of what schools uh, you were considering during that time. I was a weird kid because I <laughs> I was interested in academics and tennis, and if I liked the coaches, mm. like I, there was something about I didn't care much about like the status of a school. Yeah. I would say, you know, my, my top, my top two were UNC Chapel Hill and Vanderbilt and Vanderbilt came into the picture like a little bit later. And, you know, in the process, it was right at hard courts when they really kind of were all in. I believe uh, UNC Chapel Hill, Sarah Anderson played there. She was another Colorado local, right? Okay. So I I wasn't curious how many Colorado people went there to play tennis. You probably had to be one of the shorter few that were on their list of Mm -hmm. recruits. But okay, so UNC and then who else? I loved the coach at William and Mary at the time. Mm. And that program was growing a lot. Illinois was super interested. Honestly, I don't remember a ton about <laughs> back back then. You know, yeah. Tennessee offered me, Alabama, SMU was interested, TCU. Yeah. I mean, and DU too, Jeremy, who took over after Amy. Yeah. He was fantastic. And I really strongly considered DU because it was home and it was good academic. Um, yeah, academics. 
Yeah, and it's it's unfortunate because I don't know if you've seen it recently, but they've finally built a legitimate indoor tennis facility for them, and it's also funded by uh, Denver City proper, so they have a lot of inner-city stuff that they do through Denver Tennis Park, but... That would have been a neat spot, but nonetheless, you packed your bags and you went to you went to Nashville at Vanderbilt, and I know that you had success right out of the gate. What in the world was it like playing number one singles and number one doubles as a freshman in college? Well, I had no idea what I was doing because <laughs> I, was, I was a freshman, <laughs> and I just like, what was great about about me at that time was I didn't think about all the intricacies of like, how should I say this status on a team, like upperclassmen, lowerclassmen. And I just went in, Oh, we're the same. It's a team. Yep. So we all want to be great. So the team can be great. So I came in and I was always doing extra work, always extra serves, always whatever, extra workouts. And in the fall, I I did really well. And I was just kind of thriving. I didn't have pressure because I was a freshman, low expectations. I, I didn't go in to college thinking, well, I'm going to play number one. I, this is what I want to do. I was just happy to be at Vanderbilt and be on a team that was great. I didn't think about, like I said, any of those things. I didn't think about you know, what spot I would play or, or anything like that. So I think just taking all that stuff out was what helped me have a great year. And mm. I think kind of adjusting the team rules was a little difficult for me because sometimes it was kind of bullying yeah. because I was a freshman. And so um, that was very hard for me because I was a sensitive kid and right. didn't understand it. Yeah, there's a, and I believe what you're getting at here is the stigma of your freshman on a team. Yes. And there's seniority. And mm-hmm. I mean, you use the word bullying. I'm going to use the word hazing. I've seen, <laughs> I've seen just about everything. And yeah. I think one of the, communications I listened to that you had with one of your players um, when you were at Georgia State was just about, I don't care if you're a senior, I don't care if you're a freshman, we're one team. And if you're a freshman and you have leadership, go lead the team, go be the voice. And I think that that's just so beautiful. And it sounds like you picked up on that pretty quick at Vanderbilt that if and when you ever had an opportunity to coach a team, that it's always one. Yeah. I I just think no offense to coaches that are okay with it. I think it's bull. Yeah. Honestly, and and I'm not I'm not going to tiptoe around that. I think it's important that don't get me wrong, freshmen need to have their role. You know, getting balls, carrying balls to the court, filling up water jugs, that's normal and that's what we do. But, you know, making them do certain things or, like you said, hazing or bullying just because they're young. And, you know, that's what I told every team I've coached. I was like, I don't care what you've done in the past or what seniors did to you. We're not doing that. Mm. That's unacceptable. So, 
it works for some teams, but I'm just not not good with that. I think we all, you know, need to treat each other with respect, no matter how old, how young you are, because yeah, there have been so many examples of seniors who don't lead by example. So you have no room to talk about how things should be done on the team. You, you're not in the right role to be talking down to anybody, period. Right. And to finalize that is these types of conversations that are happening or these types of moments mm-hmm. were all so impressionable, especially at younger ages. And when those things happen, it might seem like a little thing to that senior, what they're doing to a freshman, but to that freshman, it could be life or death for them. Mm-hmm. It could be literally the, the the point of the crossroads where you felt at 16, Hey, I don't want to play tennis anymore. Like every time I go and my teammates treat me like this, like, we are that impressionable. So I believe you as a coach and a leader of your team, I tip my hat to you to, to unify, to find ways to use those, the years of leadership in the team to have that pay forward to the kids coming in and the kids coming in to push the people that have been there a while. I think it's uh, how it should work. And, you know, maybe after that year at Vanderbilt, you saw an opportunity to, find a new a new path a new journey and tell us how you came across Baylor well I was actually at Vanderbilt for two years almost two years okay I you know I was not given a really great option of transferring after my first year because that back then you could put caps on things okay like you have to release I would have to get a release as a player to contact and a release to transfer from coaches little different than today's transfer portal, huh? Very, very different. Yeah. And that's okay. But yeah, my experience was just different. So I ended up hurting my shoulder. I tore my labrum um, at NCAAs my freshman year. So the whole summer, I just, I kept playing, but I was like, this is really bad. And so my fall sophomore year, I, I didn't play at all. I kept trying to get cortisone shots. Nothing helped. Did MRIs. Obviously, I had a torn labrum and there was a lot of scar tissue and there was definitely a mismanagement there. I played the spring season serving underhand. It was very ugly. I still played like three in the lineup um, that year, but it was it was I think that year was harder for me than the first. And it got to a point where I, you know, growing up, I was always taught to be very respectful of authority and they're my coaches do as they say, but me kind of keeping quiet and shutting up, it reached a certain point. And did I make a mistake with how I handled it with my coach? Yes. But I think there were a lot of things mismanaged and it was for the best that it happened. I think there were lessons learned on both ends there. And going to Baylor, I I went, I went on a visit to TCU, which I actually signed a GIA with them. Okay. And then on a visit to Baylor and I enjoyed my visit there more and I changed my mind. That's the truth. And, um, (laughs) Went to went to Baylor. I, they were, I was very transparent about my shoulder. Right when I started 
summer school at Baylor, I had surgery the next week. Oh, wow. Because they were like, uh, this is shredded. Mm. Your labrum's shredded. Because I couldn't lift my arm up. How long was the recovery on that surgery, Alex? It was supposed to be eight months. Mm. Yeah. And um, I ended up, so that surgery was mid-July, and I ended up starting to play in January. And how was that coaching experience, team culture? Did you feel like you had a, a fresh breath of life with that experience? Yeah, it was completely different. The culture within Baylor athletics as a whole was completely different. Mm. Standards were different. It was athletics. Like how we see it now, it was like that back then there. It was just a different level. And everyone, I just remembered when I was walking around campus, just everyone was so, all the athletes were so locked in Mm. and intense and just all about being professional. It's not that Vanderbilt wasn't. This was just a different level, and I just loved that. It was great. (laughs) Definitely thrived in that environment. It was so hard. Everything was so tough there, and we had a coach that was very tough on us, Mm. and I learned a lot from him with team culture. I think one, one big thing I took from Joey at Baylor was character development meetings. Yeah, have we would have conversations. He would pick like a video. We would watch a video and dissect it, and could be Michael Jordan or LeBron James. We would talk about. He loved basketball. He's a huge like Celtics fan, so we would talk about basketball a lot. And um, that's kind of when I fell in love with the John Wooden pyramid of success. Like you saw, I love leadership. That's kind of where it really started for from, me. yeah yeah going back to kind of how we started our conversation is we really have a choice when we have bad experiences mm-hmm. if we have a bad experience with a coach we either either just get ourselves from that bad situation and never face it again or we take that learn from it and create a different narrative if we're ever given the opportunity to coach or, or lead a team and that's what I've resonated with in our conversation thus far. And Baylor, as you wrapped up there, I mean, you went three Big 12 championships, tremendous success again. I would love to real quick talk about your extended education because you and I both know it's already t- hard to be a student athlete and to get an undergrad. I understand you have a master's degree doing that while you were coaching, from my understanding, but I would just love to hear what was your passion to continue your education after Baylor? So I actually started my master's at Georgia State, and it was January of 2020. And so, like, it took me so long to muster up the courage to apply and just do it mm. because I, in my head, I'm just creating these stories that weren't true. Like, I'm, I'm too old. I'm too this. I won't have time. Is it really going to matter if I have a master's degree? And, you know, after conversations with my mom, she's like, just, just do it for you. And that's, that was it. And so I started January, 2020, right when our spring season started that year. So it was just like a lot, but, you know, crazy enough. 
that's when COVID happened that <laughs> season. And right. we ended up going to online classes and just COVID helped me really focus on that part of my life the academic side, because I took three summer classes the summer of 2020. It was insane. I don't know how I did that, but <laughs> it definitely, it helped me kind of graduate a semester early. So I'm so happy I did it. And if there's anyone listening that's questioning whether they should do something or not, just go for it. Because if you fail, it's fine. Cause you mm. went for it and you might find a passion rooted in the failure. You never know what, what could come out of that. And it's worth it. It's always worth investing in yourself. Mm. Yeah. The old, what Winston Churchill quote, uh, failing while maintaining your enthusiasm and continuing to push forward is when you become truly successful. And mm -hmm. I just, uh, I think it's admirable what you did. And I'm sure as a coach, your players looked up, to you for not only coaching them, but also being in the trenches of the classroom, just like them. Would you say that would be the case? I hope so. <laughs> they, some of them made some comments, you know, that they thought it was cool, but yeah. Yeah. I think it's important as a coach to, to always set a standard and never get lazy and rules for thee, but not for me kind of thing. Like if, if you're telling your players to do something, but you're not doing it, it's not, not great. As a coach and as someone that is recruiting for your team, I am unbelievably curious on mm -hmm. what you look for in players because you've played at the highest level collegiately. You've played at the highest level as a junior. You've been around some of the greatest tennis players in the world through your academy experience. You've seen it all, but you've also talked a lot about the character traits that are important to you. Mm -hmm. I just would love for you to walk me through and describe an ideal recruit that you're looking to play for your team. Ideal recruit would have to love competing, have a passion for the game, like truly love tennis and, and fighting and just love being out on court, win or lose. I think the family dynamic is very important. When, when I recruit someone, their level of interest in academics, mm. because being a student athlete is about doing well in both areas. Yeah. Um, and just respect. Do they speak to me with respect? One of, one of the worst things for me, and this might not be for everyone, but if I get an email or a text and you say, Hey, it drives me insane. Hey, can you do this? Uh. Hey, have you seen this? I emailed you. There's just certain things now that are just people let it go because, Oh, they're just kids. Well, that needs to change, you know, and our job is to help them understand how important it is to have a high level of self-awareness and character and uh, really good communication skills. And especially with authority or older people. And I don't think we should lose that, but yeah, recruiting is very hard and I've made, mm. I've made mistakes. I've, I've found also diamonds in the rough. Mm. 
but it's it's harder now it's it's been harder not being able to go watch players budget cuts i think a lot of coaches have had a hard time so they're watching youtube videos and really short phone calls and you know language barriers they're with international players i think there are a lot of challenges we face when recruiting and that's why you have to be so you have to do your due diligence because the the transfer portal is insane there's so many kids looking to leave mm. all the time and you wonder who you know is it our mistake did we not do our job is it they get bored like i mentioned or yeah. they just want something to do all the time i think it goes both ways and i mean when i played college tennis it was four americans i played in four years everyone else was an international <laughs> player so i i'm just curious are most of the recruits you're talking to international players or do you still try to dive into the to the national bucket as well yeah actually queens is the first place i've really focused on americans awesome because americans have focused on queens okay there you go you know and yeah. it, and it helps to have a beautiful school and a beautiful place and high level of academics there's a good mix here but i would say they're more right now they're it's it's half and half gotcha. the team and i think it's very important there's a lot of value to have that diversity in a team because you need to learn from one another you need to be around people that are different from you and i think that that makes you a better person all around there's a lot of value in that got one last question for you alex i uh mm -hmm. am taken back by your journey and I think it would be important for the listeners to understand based off of the perspective you have now you've been through a lot you've seen a lot you've licked your wounds you've persevered you're about to have an awesome wedding here in a, in a couple weeks I am just so impressed by your resiliency through your journey. And I would love to know if you had an opportunity to go back to when you were 16 years old and go to a coffee shop in Littleton, Colorado with the 16 year old Alex, knowing what you know now and sitting down with him and giving him a, a quick words of wisdom on how to approach life. What would you say to yourself? I would say, ask questions on how you can become better every day, but don't question yourself mm. based on what other people say. I think that growing up, I just, I was such a people pleaser mm. and I just wanted to, I lost, I lost focus on what I really wanted. And I just wanted to please everyone that helped me on my journey. Well, I make them happy if I do this. What will people think if I go there to school? Yeah. Will people look down on me if I make this choice? So I, I think it's important to to ask questions about where you want to go in life, but not question who you are because of your choices. Like, did this make me a bad person? You know? So I think everything in life is a choice and 
ultimately you have to make it. No one's going to make it for you and you have to live with it. There are definitely things that I would go back and handle a little bit better. Like, for example, my time at Vanderbilt, there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with with the coaches there. Yeah. They they were great in their own way, but for me it just wasn't a great fit. You know, I I needed something else. And that, you know, what what they have going on there is phenomenal and they've done so well and players fit there. That's why are there options for schools. Right. You know, and and coaches are all different and I think it's important that during during the journey you just you make your choice and if it doesn't go the way you want it to, just make a different choice. Don't kill yourself over mm-hmm. a mistake. Mm. Wise words, Alex, mm-hmm. and I am grateful for the transparency. I'm grateful for the the vulnerability and I can see why players want to to play for you and I just wish you continued success on your coaching journey, continued success in life. And I can't thank you enough for joining me today on the BTB project. Thanks, Coleman. This was awesome. You're the best. Thank you. (laughs) Appreciate you. Such awesome advice from Alex in today's episode. And there's so much to take away as the listener to understand the importance to never question yourself. There are so many situations in life that are going to challenge you, that are going to push you to the limits, that are going to make you question who you are and what you're trying to accomplish. But as you heard, when you're able to persevere, when you're able to take a step back and say, I'm going to do this for me. I'm going to go after this. I can do anything I put my mind to. What an awesome message from Alex. If this episode inspired you, Give it a share. Share it with a friend who needs that same self-encouragement, that needs that motivation. We're all in this together. I'm proud of each and every one of you. Thanks for taking a listen and take care. You're told I'll be your heart, temptation.